Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm really happy you're joining us today. Russell's with me here. It's, a, it's very exciting. It's so exciting because our guest today is Robert Moses, who is a longtime practitioner of yoga uh, for 50 years, over 50 years. Is that right, Robert? Pretty much, yep. That's incredible. And we're just so thrilled to have an esteemed yoga practitioner and teacher like yourself joining us today. Thanks for coming on our little podcast. Mm, Thanks for inviting me. I was reading your bio, and it says that you were born in South Africa. I was, yes, in Johannesburg. And you were only born there the one time, is that correct? <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we saw you at the, um, the Friends of Ashtanga uh, event recently. Right. It was it was such a pleasure to see you there. How how did you get involved in that? What was that like for you? Ah, uh, well, it was interesting. Uh, I mean, initially I wondered why did I get invited, but what it turns out is the uh, good person who lives in New Delhi, who is kind of the organizer, had been on the yatra that I had organized for Sharat, and uh, ah. we, and so you know. Uh, that's where we got acquainted, although there were a lot of people on that yatra, so I didn't recall everyone. And and then a local person near to here has been um, hopping on to the morning puja, short puja that we do, and I think she had told the New Delhi person, oh, well, Robert can do this. So I said, sure, fine. But I did warn them that I'm not really an Ashtanga practitioner. You know, there was an odd set of circumstances that the Sharat, we ran two yatras for him, 2015, and I guess the other one was 2018. One of of my closest friends, um, Robbie Cavallero, a gentleman from California. Yeah, he was there. Yeah, I remember him. I think 2015. Right. Yeah, he's a memorable person, for sure. Well, Robbie happens to know a the a very good architect from South Africa who lives in San Francisco, and him and I left South Africa together, that architect, and traveled around Europe for quite a while. And then I, I didn't go back home. I never got back to South Africa. But... Um, <laughs> So Robbie and I uh, have, you know, know, he knows that person, Stanley Seidewitz, who is an architect in San Francisco, well. So we got together and chatted about architecture as well with Robbie. That's incredible. That's (laughs) Robbie. Yeah, he just knows everybody. (laughs) You, um, I want to, I want to get back to South Africa in a, in a minute, but I, I was very intrigued by your personal story, which I, uh, which you announced on Friends of Ashtanga, and I think, I think it is appropriate that you were on the the program because you are you do seem to be a friend 
of Ashtanga. Right. Uh, I did practice. <laughs> I practiced Ashtanga <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was amazed. You said that you learned you learned yoga from, from Norman Allen in, in New York, you said. Is that That's correct? correct. Correct. Yeah. How can you tell our listeners how that happened again? Well, I was the director of the Shivananda Ashram Yoga Ranch in Woodburn, New York. And I, I had just come there from being in the Bahamas Ashram for about six years. And I was transferred up to the Yoga Ranch. And it was like going to Siberia <laughs> from the Bahamas. <laughs> Because it was midwinter, it was freezing cold. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Was it against yeah. your will? Uh, nothing was against my will. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, you know what? My wife loves to quote Isaac Bashevis Singer, who says that he believes in free will because he has no choice. <laughs> <laughs> that really puts a pin in the problem doesn't it <laughs> and, and so it's my understanding you were doing some kind of secret subversive well, yeah. yoga with norman allen on, on the side somehow no okay well that's a that's a little conflation of what happened so let me tell you what happened <laughs> uh, so um at the yoga ranch, there were about three of us. Actually, there were five people. It was freezing cold. It was February. And I had just gotten there, and the water line was frozen up, and we didn't have uh, toilets. Toilets were frozen. And uh, we're... I got a phone call, and someone said, he looking for a place just to go and spend a little time alone. And I said, well, you really don't want to come here. You know, it's really cold and everything's frozen. And he just said, good. And I said, well, there's no <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said, there's no one here. I said, there's nobody, you know, there's just five of us. And he said, good. And I said, and I kept on going on, on and on like this. And ultimately, I gave in and said, yeah, you're welcome. So this guy turned up and he was... You know, fairly short. He had a big black beard, and he has said he is just back from about twelve years in India. And I said, "Well, good." And I said, "Well, you know, our our rules here are that we have to teach anyone who comes yoga. That was the ashram's rule." <laughs> so I said, "Classes tomorrow morning, whatever." And he showed up for class, and he did everything that I said, which was the Shivananda method, which you're probably somewhat familiar with. Um, yes, sir. Right. So I, I was in the Shivananda organization for 20 years and taught many of their teacher training courses, including the ones that Sharon and David took and Eddie Stone took, etc. And uh, I can give you a long list of other people who took those courses. <laughs> anyway, so Norman did the practice but uh, I saw he was pretty good at whatever he was doing, and that was it. And he was just a really nice guy. And then there was a, one of our staff members was a ex-Hari Krishna and a ballet dancer from New York City. 
And he came to me two mornings after that and said, have you seen this guy's practice? And I said, I, I don't know what he was talking about. He said, let him show you. So we had a room and Norman <laughs> said, okay, this is what, I, what I've been doing. And he demonstrated Surya Namaskar, A, B, and started going into all the postures. And I was completely blown away just by watching what he was doing. At that point, he was just really? back. He was back from about 12 years in India. He was totally fired up. And he was really good, very powerful practice. Actually different even to what you see today. It was, if I want to describe it, it was like a center point and a whirl of energy around that center point. And it was very strong. And of course, Shivananda is, you know, you do a posture, you lie down, relax. And you do another posture, you lie down and relax. <laughs> <laughs> so any, anyhow, Norman... Even, yeah. Even the Surinamaskar, was that, was that different? It was just a lot more sort of a powerful thing. You know, there was, yeah. there was just this uh, real palpable uh, energy about it. I asked Norman where did he learn that stuff. So Norman had been in India for about 12 years, most of the time, in Mysore. And he was working on the Tipu Sultan's, uh, you know, the archaeological dig on Tipu Sultan's mm -hmm. fort. Which Tipu, is Tipu the tiger. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's how he got to stay there for all that time. But during that whole time, he would pretty much go to practice in the original shala on a daily basis and sit around after the class and, you know. And um, so he showed me a picture of Guruji, which was just a very small black and white half-torn photo that he kept in his wallet. And he said, from him. And that was it. That was Anyhow, Norman stayed there a little bit. And then, so the reason he had come there is because he had just broken up with his first wife. And, oh. Right. Well, they had separated or, you know, they weren't together. And Norman's first wife's father was the biggest cheese importer on the East Coast of America. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he, Fantastic. A family from New Jersey, and they imported all the cheese for all the supermarkets all across the East of USA. And uh, we were trying to support that yoga ranch through an alfalfa sprout business. Mm -hmm. which, which we had bought from devotees of Muktananda, you know, Muktananda's ashram in South Fallsburg. They had, right. they had started the sprout business, and then we bought it from them, and we were using that as we worked, you know, to grow sprouts. We grew about 1,500 pounds of sprouts, 1,500 a week, and sold them in the Hunts Point Market in New York and restaurants, etc. That's how we were surviving. People have to survive, you know. Well, <laughs> that's right. But the thing was, is the yoga ranch was very busy during the 
few short summer months. But during the winter, no one came there because we didn't have water and it was freezing cold and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so so uh, Norman thought he could introduce me to his ex-wife's father and we could get sprouts into the supermarkets. So Norman and I, so Norman and I made good friends and we're still friends to this day and I spoke to him a few, you know, about a couple of weeks back and he still calls me Swami because I used to be a Swami in the Shivananda organization. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, later on, Norman went back to India, and I actually visited him on that visit in Mysore because he got married, remar- he married another woman, Purna, and he wanted her to go and study with Guruji in Mysore. So they went back for a little bit. And I happened to be in India at that time and uh, visited him. But I, I never went to the Yoga Shala and I never met Guruji then. I only met him in Manhattan when he came for the big classes at the Puck building. So I forgot. What, are you asking me how come I met Norman, right? <laughs> so this is yeah. a, That's right. <laughs> That's right. This is all great stuff, though. We're getting this all on tape, sir. <laughs> this is great. I think really we're kind of kind of talking a little bit about um, lineage a little bit because it, at, at a certain point then you you transmitted Norman Allen's teachings from you and you you taught uh, Derek Ireland you said after some time yeah well I didn't actually teach him I showed him Surya Namaskar A and B and how to. And some of the, you know, how you jump from one posture to the next. And how you move. But I didn't, basically, we never had really clear. Oh, wait, I want to tell you something. So Norman, when he moved moved back down to New York City after being at the ranch for a little and married Purna, they had a kid, Hanuman, and later on got another kid, Ganesha. They were living in a loft in downtown Manhattan. That loft is very important because that loft was across the road from the FBI building. I don't know if you know downtown Manhattan. There's the city hall and then there's the FBI building. And mm-hmm. and right across the road from the FBI building, there is, an, a, at that time, there was about a 10-story apartment building. And Norman was staying in that apartment building with his wife Purna and their son Ganesha, and that that loft, that apartment or loft belonged to a couple named Robert and Amy Shinerock. Robert and Amy lived next door to Guruji in Mysore, <laughs> and, practiced, oh. <laughs> and practiced Ashtanga as well, way back. So there was, yeah. There was, there was Norman, and uh, Norman picked it up by going to um, Oroville and seeing Manju demonstrate uh, with uh, uh, somebody. There's a guy who went to Japan. I forget his name. But that's where Norman saw the practice and said, "Hey, I want to learn this." And he went and he came to my and he sat around and asked Guruji if he could learn it. And 
After a while, Guruji said, okay. First, he was not going to teach it to Westerners. Right. right. Because they weren't, you know, because we barbarians. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's that much is clear. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then uh, Robert and Amy came because they, they like a uh, school friend. Uh, Robert is a school friend of Norman. They grew up together in uh, Los Angeles on Long, La, Laguna Beach or somewhere. And um, Robert, actually, they lived actually next door to Guruji. Then after a while, they, they came back and they weren't in the loft at the time. I went there because they were off in Bali raising a couple of their kids. But Norman and Purna were staying in that loft. And that's where Norman started teaching Ashtanga Yoga in New York. Yeah, in, in New that, York. In that loft. In that loft. Wow. <laughs> and so, so because of the sprout business, now I was friends with Norman now. And because of the sprout business, we went down to New York once a week to deliver the sprouts to buyers in the Hunts Point market and uh, different restaurants and hotels and, and the Korean stores across Manhattan. So I, what I would do is wake up. I, we were awake all Sunday, all of Sunday, packing these sprouts into four-ounce bags and five-pound bags. And then at about 11 o'clock, we would pack a small truck, refrigerated truck full of the sprouts, and drive the two hours or two and a half hours down to the South Bronx to the Hunts Point Market and go and sell the sprouts and buy vegetables. And then we would drive around Manhattan and drop off sprouts at different places. And then I would park that van and go to Norman's Loft and take Ashtanga Yoga class. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd be Who was away. he teaching? Was it just you yeah. or was there other people? <laughs> so this is the way the classes were. Norman said to me, you know, he said, oh, you should come for class. So I was very intrigued by, by the system. Now, let me just tell you about the subversive point. It wasn't subversive. Nothing was subversive. What I had said on that Friends of Ashtanga <laughs> is that I, I, I myself personally was doing this secretly because I was a Swami in the Shivananda Yoga Vedanta centers teaching Shivananda Yoga Vedanta teacher training courses left, right, and center. And our, our rule, as in most Indian teachers' rule, is you do one type of yoga and that's it. And yeah. you don't do any other type because you have one teacher, one guru, et cetera, et cetera. But I was so intrigued and I wasn't, you know, I had been doing yoga now for since 1971 and this was 1982, uh, 1982. So, so I had already, you know, developed a Shivananda to at some point, but I saw that you could progress a whole lot more by doing this system which at that point no one knew about in America. Nobody. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. Okay, so Norman was teaching these classes, and he had about six small uh, Persian rugs that he had bought in Afghanistan. 
when the Russians were still in Afghanistan, Norman had gone into Afghanistan and he had purchased these rugs. They were all about, (laughs) (laughs) and that was the only, he had about six or eight of them and that was the only material possession he had of any, any value. And he was holding on to them just in case he needed some money at some point. And we did our we did our practice on those Persian carpets from Afghanistan. Uh, And and Norman did not take any money for classes, but people could give him what he if he wanted something, like what he really liked was coffee, so they would give him coffee beans or something like that. Yeah. I heard that and, about him in Maui, that uh, it's the same still, uh, it's even not, it's today. Not, yeah, he's on the big island, Hawaii. Today, today, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, today he has a different rule. The rule is, if you come for all the classes, it's free. But if you miss a class, you have to pay $25. And if you miss two classes, you have to pay fifty dollars. <laughs> I I owe him a lot of money then. I'm, I'm not able to come to his class very often, <laughs> so I'll send him a check. I guess I don't know what to do. Oh. Anyway, um, and so I took. That's where I learned. So I'd go there Monday morning at about six a.m. having traveled been awake all of Sunday, all of Sunday night, driven all around New York. And so my body was wide open <laughs> because I hadn't got it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> but uh, Norman was teaching, you know, the way it used to be taught, very, very strong adjustments, you know, and students were yelling at him, get off my back, and even worse, like, (laughs) and Norman Norman only had one instruction, breathe. (laughs) Breathe, that was it. And he he didn't explain anything at all. He only said, okay, now you do this, and he may show the next. But the nicest thing about those classes were, uh, there were only about six or seven or maximum eight people ever. And one of those people in there was Beryl Bender Birch. Oh, right. Wow, yeah. Right. But the, I did, the powerful I did, I, lady. It was, yeah, the power book, right. So I never <laughs> knew. <laughs> I, I was, you know, in there just to do the practice, and I do the practice. And halfway through the class, very often Norman would go downstairs, buy a cup of coffee and come back on and teach the rest of the class while he was walking around with the cup of coffee in his hand. <laughs> yeah. Manju, yeah. Manju would have me do the same for him. He would send uh-huh. me for coffee and then he'd, he'd drink the coffee in the second half of class. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, Harmony and I, we do that the same. <laughs> it's a it's a parampara. Parampara. <laughs> no coffee, no prana. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's where I learned. I got up to Bujipi Das. Wait, I got up to. Uh, I got up to about one third of the way through the second series, but that was that was it. Anyway, I and I really loved it a lot, and then, you know. I would walk back up to the Shivananda Yoga Center on 24th Street feeling like I had been run over by a truck. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, but in you know a short place of time, my body opened up a whole lot more than it had been with uh, you know the previous practice. Anyhow, you, you would have had to hide your new flexibility from your te- from your from the people in charge. Uh, well, I I was the director of the yoga ranch, so I could pretty much you know do what I like to do. <laughs> okay. But, okay. but but I was getting so psyched with this that I wanted to show other people. So I started showing other people, wow, there's this amazing type of yoga. And one of my very good Swami friends went to my teacher, my guru at the time, and told him. And the teacher told me, so I told someone else to tell me that he had heard I was doing this and that I should not do it because I'll get confused in my mind and I'll be mixing up different styles. So I yeah. took I took that as a good, uh, you know, okay, I should not do this. So I quit going to Norman, but I kept on doing the practice by myself with no one. I didn't show anyone else. But before this happened, I had gone back down to the Bahamas for something or other at the time that Derek and Rada were basically the directors of the yoga retreat on Paradise Island. So right. they, yeah. so what what happened with them is they were, you know, he they they both were working on British Airways. I'm not sure that he was, but she was a flight really? attendant. And they would get like, uh, you know, free tickets to some summer paradise because they're from England and they want to get off that cold island. I just want to say for for a moment for our listeners that having lived in England for a number of years, um, I I can't overstate what a huge figure he is for European Ashtanga Yoga. So many people do Ashtanga Yoga in Europe because of of Derek and and Radha. Um, Hamish Henry and John Scott, for example, both learned from him in Greece when they were just like a carpenter and a cook at the center. And he's he is a massive, a massive icon. And so this this story that you're telling now is just incredible to me. That um but please go on. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, I like the interruption. <laughs> Give me a chance to put my brakes on here. So, so, so I had been the director of the yoga ashram, the yoga retreat in the Bahamas for about six years. And then I was transferred to the yoga ranch. But I'd go back down there uh, during some busy seasons, whatever. In the meantime, Derek and Radha had come there during the off season, which was the summer months. And they, of course, loved it and got into doing the yoga and they gave up whatever else they were doing in life. The yoga retreat during the off-season was very quiet, like about five people. So you're living on Paradise Island in the Bahamas with basically not much to do except, you know, yoga, pastures, uh, swim and go deep sea, diving, uh, not too deep, you know, (laughs) things like that. (laughs) So they, they were really loving that. And I must have come down for, and then the season would start ramping up around Thanksgiving and Christmas, a lot of people. New Year was packed full and New Year till spring would be packed full of people. 
I can't remember exactly when I went down, what time it was when they were there. But uh, I said to Derek, who was, you know, this very strong, virile, handsome, good-looking kind of Tarzan-type personality. Yeah, the man of of bronze. Right, exactly. I, I knew he would love this practice. So on the tennis court there, I showed him, you know, basically what I knew. And it was just a one-time thing because we needed to be careful because if anyone else saw that, (laughs) this this was not good. So, yeah, and he he just loved it right away, you know, this where you jump through and jump into a posture and stuff like that. It was just great. And shortly, and then I must have gone back to the yoga ranch, and shortly after that, there was some falling out with Derek and the new director who had taken over after. It wasn't a bad falling out. It was just, you know, different ideas, and probably Derek wanted to pursue this new thing he found. Right. (laughs) And and actually, I did... um, meet them again in India because in Mysore later on at another state. So they went back and then they went to Mysore and then he started, um, you know, practicing Ashtanga and, and uh, all the rest you probably know a lot more than I do. <laughs> but There's wonderful old, old footage of Derek Ireland in the, in the old Shala wearing weights around his wrists and ankles <laughs> and he like chest weight and he would do that so that the posture would be harder to do and then he and then it's and the, it's just incredible like you it's unthinkable that Patabi Joyce that Guruji would, would allow him to do that in right. the room <laughs> it's just phenomenal yeah well Derek was his own person <laughs> yeah. so I went later on I was in India and I was taking some people around and I don't know if you ever have heard of or met Lakshmi Kantraj Urs. So he was a police superintendent of police in Hassan district, but lived in Mysore. And Norman and him were very good friends because he was one of Guruji's Indian students And he had diabetes, and he had been able to control his diabetes by doing the practice. Right. Yeah. We. We. we, There's. There's always a. It seems like there's always a superintendent uh, of police in the yoga room, (laughs) and there's a there's a lineage for that as well now. Yeah. Yeah. So, actually, Lakshmi Kantaraj Urs. And his wife came and stayed with us at the yoga ranch when he got a chance to come to America. And and he was hosted by Norman, but at that point, Norman didn't have anywhere where they could stay. He was living near to us in the Catskills, but they didn't have enough room. So Lakshmi Kantraj Urs and his wife stayed with us at the yoga ranch. And I want to tell you one very interesting thing he said about Western, his, his observation. So this is a policeman, basically, basically a superintendent of police, sort of like a high up sheriff or something like that. 
And after a while, he said to me, you know, what's the difference between India and America? He said, in India, the whole place looks like it's out of control, but people's minds are in control. And in America, the whole place looks like it's in control, but people's minds are completely out of control. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. We don't maintain our balance of minds well here. Yeah, I always no. remember that that observation. This is, you know, basically a policeman looking, you know, first time in America seeing that. Anyhow, because we took good care of him when I went back to Mysore, uh, to Carolyn, was taking a few people around, he hosted us to go all around Mysore and places around that area, uh, Hassan District particularly. And during, during that visit, Derek and Radha were practicing, and they came over to the Lakshmi Kantraj Ursa's house, and we got together and said, hi, and how are you? And er- Derek was fine, but he was a little bit upset about Indian bus- buses hurtling through small villages and knocking people over and killing them and not stopping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a that's a real that's, thing. That's a problem depending on your point of view. Right. Right. So so that was that was mostly what I recall from that. And then later on they went to Crete and they started the place yeah, on that's right. Crete where Jocelyn Stern, Eddie's wife Jocelyn began practicing Ashtanga with Derek and Radha on the island of Crete. Oh, and exciting. That's how She's she got French. into yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. She's from France. Anyhow, so that's a little bit about Norman. And, and then uh, Norman and I, then he went to Hawaii, and then he started teaching in the boxing gym. In the meantime, I was still the Swami at the yoga ranch, and my wife came up there as a guest, and she stayed there, and we eventually got together and after my teacher, the founder of the Yoga Ranch and many other, all the Shivananda ashrams died and left his body, we uh, conceived a child not yet born and we went to live with Norman on a tent on his property in Hawaii. And I started practicing again with him in the yoga, in the boxing uh, gym on Keala Kakua in Hawaii. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, I wanted to ask you how, about how you started with Shiva. Did was it something that you had, you had done in South Africa? Was that was that the kind of thing that you do in South Africa? Was were there were there people around who did that sort of thing? And there were, but I didn't know them. Um my father <laughs> my father was interested in yoga. I'm from a middle-class, urban, suburban Jewish family. And my I wondered, fa- my brother's name is Moses, and so I wondered if, if you were Jewish yeah. uh, as well. So my father was, he's a Kohen, that means uh, the rabbi, rabbis, traditional yeah. rabbis. And he was very interested in esoteric things and very interested in yoga. And he had books of yoga. And he would 
tried to practice from his books by himself. And one of the things that he did teach me when I was a little kid was Nauli. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. Because that was very fascinating, you know, watching, a, watching somebody's abdominal muscles churn around. So kids That's love incredible. that. So, yeah, they oh do, goodness. and they love yeah, doing yeah. it too. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, but for the rest of it, yeah, I wasn't that interested. And my father wanted to be a vegetarian, and the rest of my family, you know, said, no, why, etc. However, <laughs> there were a lot of Divine Life Society Swami Shivananda. Devo Indian devotees in South Africa um, because of an Indian Swami named Swami Sahajananda who was a South African born but of Indian descent and had opened up a number of yoga centers and one day I walked into one of those centers and saw all Swami Shivananda's books and I intuited I'm going to read these one day and I walked out and that was it. <laughs> 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 and walked out <laughs> with, with purpose. <laughs> you look at a mountain, someday I will climb that mountain, and then you immediately turn around and walk away from it. <laughs> That's just yeah, crazy. well, I, I didn't know what these things were. I mean, I just by chance had walked into this place, and I saw all those books, and, you know, I just had the intuition. I'm, I'm going to read these, and that was it. Full stop. So yeah, how so. did you get back to it? So then I was studying architecture. It was six years. The, the fourth year of architecture was traditionally you went to work in an architect's office, made some money if you could, and then many people would travel to Europe to um, look at, you know, the olden day cathedrals and maybe modern architecture, Mies van der Rohe, and et cetera, et cetera. So half of the way through my third year, my parents decided to leave South Africa and go and live in Israel, along with my younger sister and my elder sister was already living in Israel. So they left and I went to live with my aunt. During that time, I met a young man in South Africa who was a forward thinker and we had a small group of people during which he made a remark at some point which said is that religion is the answer. We were struggling with apartheid and the difficulties of that. And, you know, and basically this was the late 60s. So in America was going through Timothy Leary and hippies and everything like that. And young people in South Africa were under a similar kind of you know, disenthrallment with the materialistic life and looking for something. And he said, religion is the answer. And that was about it. But it just mm. struck me somewhere. So my friend Stanley and myself worked in an architect's office, got money, and we flew to Paris. We spent about three days there and got totally confused and decided we should go to England. And we went. <laughs> <laughs> At least we could speak the language there. Right. Yeah. So, so our aim was to travel through Europe for the next nine months at least and um, study architecture. 
we tried to thumb our way out of London down to Dover and spent a whole day standing on the road and didn't get a ride. So we went back to London, and at that time, people used to get correspondence and use American Express offices as a place to cash travelers' checks and uh, get letters and mail, etc. So we we went to American Express for something, and outside there was an American couple, and they were selling a Volkswagen van. So we said, okay, we'll Fantastic. buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we bought the van. We bought the van for about seven hundred US dollars, and it was a. It was. It was. They had somebody had converted it into sleep two and put in a simple kitchen. It wasn't, you know, a fancy one. So we got into this van. Oh, that couple gave me a book. Oh. And, and the book was called Practice of Yoga by Swami Shivananda. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow. wow. And for some reason... Did you recognize it as, the book, as, as one of the books from the, the center? I didn't know it was one of the books from the center at that point. But I was waking up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and I didn't know why. I used to smoke, and I was trying to quit smoking, and I didn't know why. I had stopped eating meat, and I didn't, and I didn't know why. And then I read in this book, mm. and it said, wake up at 3 o'clock and sit and meditate, and don't smoke, and don't eat meat, and don't... So I said, wow, look, this is all happening to me. <laughs> so, yeah. I, <laughs> so to shorten the story a little bit, we started traveling around England, and then we took a ferry over to France, and we went down to Paris, and we were driving out of Paris, and there were about 100 young people standing alongside the road hitchhiking. In those days, you hitchhiked. Uh, many people did. Um, by the way, my elder son took a gap year when he was just left school, and his friend spent 11 months thumbing around Europe just a few years ago. So people still do it. Oh, wow. So outside Paris, we saw all those people. By now, we had a system, and the system was we were driving two of us in this VW van. If we picked up hitchhikers, we'd take them with us. They'd pay for gas but they got the transport and we would all have a place to sleep for the night because we could camp and sleep in the van and we could cook food. So we had meals, accommodation and transport. So we stopped and picked up these two Indian, uh, barely, you know, young adults. And somewhere, somewhere I picked up a picture of Lakshmi, who I didn't know who she was. And I pasted it up on the inside door of the van. And when the Indians got into the van, he's, the one said, my God has picked us up. We've been standing here all day, and now she's picked us up. Oh, I didn't know, wow. <laughs> I didn't know what he was amazing. talking about. So he was a super relaxed guy. Like, he, he oozed relaxation. <laughs> and I said to him, how come you're so relaxed? So he said, well, he does yoga. So I said, well, what? So he, they were from Mauritius, you know, the little island of Mauritius off Africa. And they, was, yeah. they were studying medicine in Paris. 
to be doctors. And in Mauritius, he studied yoga with Swami Venkatesananda, who is a dis- one of the very important disciples of Swami Shivananda, who Swami Shivananda had sent to Mauritius to open up a divine life society there. So I said, well, why don't you teach me? So where we stopped to come for the night, he taught me how to stand on my head. <laughs> That's the first, that was the very first yoga posture I learned. How, how do you get your feet on your head so that you can stand on your head? I don't know. No, 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 no. <laughs> he taught me to stand, as you well know, on your head, on the ground. But what was interesting is, um, you know, I wasn't doing any asanas and, I, you know, my body, he showed me all the steps and my body was like shaking and he held my body. And as he held my body, all his relaxation flowed into my body and I stood without any problem whatsoever, just like that. Due to due to his whatever, and he, you know, he wasn't he was not a teacher or anything. He was just practicing this stuff. Anyhow, cut a long story short, and I we spent nine months traveling in that van, and eventually we went to Israel to um, meet to my parents, see my parents, and part of our travels, we wanted to see many things there as well. And by that time, I decided I'm not going back to South Africa. The Stanley, he said he's going back. So we sold the van and Whoa. we sold it for more than we had bought it in London because, <laughs> <laughs> because people. It was a good investment. Well, <laughs> at, that, at that time, you had to pay a lot of duty to bring a vehicle into Israel. And we had brought it in as our own. We didn't have to pay that duty. So somebody wanted it. Anyway, it worked out a good deal for us, everybody. And I was living with my parents, and I wanted to go to India to study yoga. I did not want to finish architecture. This was, this was, had opened my whole life, had changed completely. Why should I go back to South Africa? My parents weren't there. My, you know, I was changed my diet. I was doing yoga by myself with the books in my father's house and the Shivananda book. I was learning to meditate by myself. But I wanted to go to India, but I could not because at that time, India would not allow white South Africans into India because of apartheid in South Africa. So you couldn't even go if I wanted to. During that time, my mother saw a little classified ad in the Jerusalem Post, an English-language newspaper, which was advertising the Shivananda Yoga Center in Tel Aviv. And she cut it out and gave it to me, and I said, well, this is not what I really wanted, because what I wanted was to go to India. And I wanted to go into the Himalaya, and I wanted to find a yogi in a cave who would touch me, and I would get enlightened, and I would be free absolutely forever and ever and ever, and there would be no beginning of past or future. (laughs) But anyway, I thought I'd go and check it out anyway. You know, your your generation is famous for, for seeking those sorts of things, the 
the young people don't seem, they seem to want more likes on Instagram more than they want enlightenment forever and ever. So, yeah. You're speaking my language though. <laughs> that's, I, that's what I was after too, traveling, traveling all over India, searching for that uh, yeah. renunciate in the cave that would open my chakras and <laughs> free me from bondage. <laughs> You get mukti Are, just like that. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think the, the three of us probably uh, upset our parents to some degree. Well, yes. I mean, obviously, when I became a, later on became a sannyasi, a swami, a renunciate, and uh, my mother at that time wrote to me and said that they're very disappointed because, you know, they thought I would make a good father and a good husband and a good father. However, she did think I'd look nice in orange anyway. <laughs> Sweet. So, so, so they were upset, but they were understanding, which was very nice of them. So my we mother need saw need to find out how you got to India. Yeah. She... she I'll come there in a moment. She gave me that ad. I went to that place. I knocked on the door, and the young man opened the door, and he took my hand and sort of pulled me over the threshold. And at that instant, I felt all my worries and troubles leave, and I knew that I was, quote, home. That was the Shivananda Center. And I asked him uh, I wanted to do yoga, and he said, I said, I don't have money. He said, if I cleaned the, the place and the floor and the yoga mats, he would teach me. And I said, great. So I started living there and studying, started learning Shivananda Yoga. So I just wanted to get to that point in the story. Uh, did you end up leaving Israel to go to India through the Shivananda Ashram? Uh, not at that point, because I still had a South African passport. So, right. so you so, had to wait for India to change its rules? Yeah. However, if I stayed in Israel for three years, I would have had to go to the army. I'd already, oh. ser I'd already served in the army in South Africa for one year, compulsory training. And I really, I didn't like that club too much. So no. <laughs> in the meantime... The Swami Vishnu Devananda, who was the head of the Shivananda Yoga Vedanta Centers International, had come to Israel, and I had met him, plus Swami Venkatesha and Swami Satchidananda, all had come there at different times. Wow. But, but, but uh, Swami, I'll call Swam, Vishnu Devananda Swamiji, he told me, why don't I come to Canada and take the Shivananda teacher training course? So that allowed me to, uh, up until this time for two years, I was living in the Shivananda Yoga Center in Tel Aviv. And I was working, working full-time also in an architect's office as well. So I quit that and I said goodbye to my family and I went to Canada and took the teacher training. And afterwards I got the Canadian citizenship. Once How did I that happen? How did you just get that? <laughs> uh, because, because uh, first of all, I was living there. So then, and then now I was a full-time, um, what we call staff member 
of the Shivananda Yoga organization. And, and um, Swamiji said I should just become a citizen. So I got a citizen as, by that point, I was being an ordained Swami, renunciate. And Swamiji had, uh, you know, basically we said, that this was my job. So I had a job. <laughs> and I had a, you know, I was fully, you, you need for Canada, you need a job, you need to be, be able to take care of yourself. So either lots of money or et cetera. And there's a point, there's a point system. I don't know if you know the, how you become a landed immigrant, I believe it's called. The point system, you need 50 points and you can get for education, language, French, or et cetera, et cetera. But I got 49 points. And, oh, no. <laughs> and the person looking at, the person interviewing me said, maybe Canada just doesn't need industrialists and, you know, commerce and maybe they need people like you too. I'll give you two extra points. And he came here oh. too. Canada is so nice. <laughs> My goodness. So I see this as so, you know, the, the grace of the, the divine, or whatever you want to call it. So once I got a Canadian passport, then that, then Swamji sent me in 1982 to Kerala, to Nayadam, to teach the Shivananda Yoga teacher training course there in India. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the first time I went to India. And I went for the next 12 years, every January, February, March, and spent, you know, long time traveling around afterwards, etc., etc. But all within the, at that time, as a staff member and a renunciate in the Shivananda Yoga Centers. I wanted to ask you if, if in that time you met my my very first yoga teacher, uh, Suda, Suda Weixler, who is yeah. uh, an Austrian who had lived in, in uh, Rishikesh as a renunciate for seven years at the Shivananda Ashram. Yeah, so I saw that in your pages document, but I don't recall meeting that person well at all. I might have a little bit. The thing to know is, is that the Shivananda Yoga Vedanta centers are like an offshoot of the Divine Life Society, and they're not really affiliated in any way other than via, they like my teacher and the other the Rishikesh Ashram, they guru buys. They have the same guru, but there's no other connection other than, you know, similar similar practices and et cetera, et cetera. It's like cousins in a family. Oh. So and and there's there's no uh, material connections or anything like that. So the Shivananda is the the who started all of that. And he had many, 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 many students who went all around the world um, and established their own places like Swami Satchitananda, Swami Venkatesananda, Swami Sahajananda, Swami Vishnadevananda, and in uh, Kaululampa, the others, and Bihar School of Yoga, Satyananda, he's another one. So some of them 
connected themselves, and but most of them didn't. They made their own places, and that's sort of the way that spread around the world. So even if I went to Rishikesh, I wouldn't have. I wasn't really in the Rishikesh scene, so to speak. And right. In fact, my my teacher had a bit of uh, tensions going on because he felt that they were not. Uh, practicing enough, <laughs> although recently they've begun to practice more. <laughs> but they were, you know, they'd sort of um, they'd focused more on sort of Vedanta and meditation rather than, you know, still keeping asana, pranayama, etc., very much alive. And he, he, so there was, you know, just like in any family, there's tensions there. There was some tensions. Right. I think that, that may be why Suda left Rishikesh to go to Mysore to study Ashtanga Yoga. I think maybe there's a, a similar sort of uh, feeling that he needed to work more on his asana. Right, right. Yeah. Hmm. I, 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 I just want to say that I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're telling us all of these stories. I have a particular... Um, love and fascination for history and context. And I, I was scribbling furiously during the friends of Ashtanga event when you were telling your stories. Cause I, I liked, I like telling them myself. I like, you know, giving people context myself within our, our yoga workshops. And a, one time I, I, I read in a book um, by Norman Allen that if, if like me, that if you're interested in, in history, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about, about this quote. If you'd, if you'd heard Norman say this, I like it a lot. It was um, in my, my teacher, uh, Guy Donahue, his book, Guruji, and it's from there. And it's, I think it's a int- really, interesting, really interesting quote. Right. So... so <clears throat> I haven't heard, I don't recall that particular quote, but I, you know, Norman is a very particular type of guy. To understand Norman, he would say things like this often, you know, very short, sharp, curt things that left you wondering, like, what did he say and why did he say it? And he's also, he's also a person that pretty much tries to live in the present moment. Mm-hmm. So, so I would call him, say, once a year, usually around his, or on or around his birthday time. And I might call him up one year and we'd have a conversation and say goodbye. And the next year I'd call him up and he'd pick up the conversation from where we left off. <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so... Or he would just start talking about what he was doing right there and then. Like, I'm lying on the floor here knocking nails into the floor, something like that. So he's very much... (laughs) The reason he went to live in Hawaii is because he wanted to get as far away from America as possible, but he's still got to, you know, a citizen, he got to be there in America. And and there on Hawaii, when we went to visit, visit him... We, he would take us to meet some of these Hawaiian people he had met, you know, six foot eight, 
280, 290 pound guys. And uh, we would go meet them and you'd shake their hand. And they don't shake your hand. They barely touch it. And Norman would just say something like, the bigger they are, the softer they shake. (laughs) 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 No, he, he comes out with, like, for example, I'll tell you something he said about Guruji. <laughs> Norman grew up in Los Angeles, and he said, I saw Los Angeles subdivided. He said, I also saw Guruji subdivided. So what he meant by that is, you know, that things would change and you know, more people would come and things get compartmentalized and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong, he had a lot of love for Guruji and a lot of, uh, but it was a whole different um, thing than it was later on when there were so many people. When he was there, there were maybe six people or less. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so Norman's this kind of guy. He's, he's, um, he's got deep insight into humanity and himself and people. And he's very straightforward and gruff about it. You know, he's not, uh, he, so, but, but I want to tell you, he's a beautiful, beautiful guy. I really love him and feel very close to him. So, you know, whatever. And he, he also told me about, you know, Tim, Tim Miller. At the time mm-hmm. when I met Norman, Tim had started to teach. He said, Guruji taught one person really well. That was Tim Miller. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of respect for Tim and the way that Tim was practicing, etc. So, mm-hmm. and by the way, on the Big Island, there were a bunch of old Ashtangis living there, totally off the grid, uh, practicing yeah. and, and not, you know, not doing anything else about it, just doing their practice. It was an uh, interest, yeah. It's the... Uh- <laughs> Norman Allen connection so fascinating to me as well because he was when I first started uh, learning about Ashtanga Yoga he was um, sort of a central figure sort of a, a person who a lot of the teachers uh, in Calgary in Canada where I'm from uh, were traveling actually down to Hawaii to learn from him and then coming back and sharing um, what they had learned from him in a a couple of them even like moved down there to work on his his farm and and just practice ah, yoga. Cool. So it's yeah. <laughs> an interesting, yeah, connection. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, my wife and I lived there in a small tent, and then we built a sort of big platform, and uh, mm-hmm. we made a hoop house out of blue top, and we lived in there. We lived there with him for quite a few months until. My wife was getting very pregnant, and there was mm-hmm. no te- telephone there. There was no refrigerator. There was no running water. So some we had met a woman who had a very small little off-the-grid uh, solar house on the uh, right down on the south in what's called um, Ocean View, where lots of Canadians live down there. <laughs> they <Yeah>. live <laughs> In the winter. <laughs> in, in the wintertime, where they call them snowbirds. <laughs> yeah. They fly, fly down there. 
And they're also, they're also, the people who live down there are federal outlaws, snowbirds, and federal outlaws, and marijuana growers. They grow in the lava tubes underground, lots of marijuana. Oh, wow. Because huh. the, fe- helico- the feds are always flying over in helicopters looking for the marijuana. So they would grow them know. in big lava tubes underground. So it was an interesting, I, I, interesting place. I, what that, what that means? Like a, I don't know. A lava tube, like the like the ca- no the caves <laughs> that the lava makes, and then it dries, and they're like big cave tunnels, right? Is that right, right. What happens when the lava when the lava flows? It cools on the outside, and it flows underground like veins in your body, and then mm. the outside. Uh, form and the inside the lava flows, but eventually there's a big tube, and the whole all those islands have got like subway size or even larger network of tubes underground all over the place, and you can walk in, you can get in them and walk in them, and you know they they great for meditating and everything. <laughs> yeah, amazing! I was in one of those lava caves in Iceland. Ah, they have yeah. quite a few there right. too. Right. Well, I just, I just, it's so interesting that talking about about Norman and talking about that that quote, because um, to me it brings up a really interesting dynamic uh, about parampara and about lineage, and you know, being so. Um, for Harmony and I, you know, we were so invested in, in a relationship to the lineage holder that it, it becomes a kind of attachment. Like we were proud because of what we were associated with. Right. And, and so this quote from Norman is really beautiful. It really like gets to the heart of the matter. Like even this, this, um, this beautiful system and structure with a history behind it, even this can be a point of attachment for the the yoga student, and I was I was just so impressed by by that ability that he could just you know puncture that that bubble of attachment, and I was like, this is a really this is a really interesting Swami, this Norman Allen guy. Yeah, he's a real interesting guy. He was, I mean, he. Uh, as I said, I think I had mentioned to Harmony at some point, the one thing he really, at the time I met him, I was a sannyasi. Then later on, yeah. when when my my wife conceived our child, and I was still a, I was still in the Shivananda organization as a sannyasi. And we basically had to make a decision. Well, we didn't have to. We knew exactly what we wanted to do, which was to leave immediately or as soon as we could go and live somewhere where we could just raise this child. And I immediately called up Norman and I said, hey, Norman, this is the situation. And he said, I thought so. (laughs) 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 And he said, you're welcome here. So we put everything in order, and we. Um, it took us a little while because I'd been, you know, twenty years in this organization. But we didn't tell anyone else except my best friend from school in South Africa, who lived in Marin County, California, 
and my elder sister, who also lived out there in California, and Norman. And we arranged our lives in such a way, got um, the day before we departed, we told the organization that I was in that, you know, this is our situation and we want to go and raise this child and forgive us. And we're leaving, we're leaving tomorrow. We had the frequent flyer miles for the ticket. And so we took, we took some stuff that we had. We flew to California where my best friend took us to the Marin County Courthouse where we got married. And we flew to Hawaii and we landed on the big island during a hurricane. <laughs> and Norman picked us up in his tiny little car and we drove to his property. And he never questioned anything in all of that. We were quite welcome. Then we stayed in a tent on his property and I managed to find a few days a week job and rest of the time would help Norman around there or go to the boxing gym for yoga class. <laughs> <laughs> did the Shivananda Ashram, how did they take your departure? Um, they slammed the doors shut behind us. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, and I don't want to get in all the details, but they did not, they did not handle it like compassionate, understanding, um, you know, you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, was, was a great lesson for me because I was under the illusion that it would go well. But what I learned, the biggest thing I learned is Say if you're trying to understand how come Nazi Germany uh, treated Jews in the way that they did, whereas there were indiv individual Germans that saved many Jews. So in that mm -hmm. moment, I understood how a group of people behaves very differently to individual people. And then I could understand things like the Holocaust and apartheid South Africa etc., etc., because within a small group or an individual, somebody will treat you in one way, but in a larger group of people, when the group is invested in a different myth of the universe around them, their treatment will be very, very different. So I have to thank you know, that experience for that understanding. It uh, awoke, you know, awoke in me uh, a realization of the way that groups behave and the way that individuals behave. It's very different. Because it's amazing because it's, you were, in fact, you, I, it struck me that, that, you were, that your uh, experience with yoga was flowering with, your love for this woman and with your children and with taking on a, a householder life, this is something that should be in, encouraged, you know, to, but in, in fact, they were very, they were very intolerant. Well, yeah. <clears throat> now there, there is absolute place for renunciation. There's place for household. So traditionally in the, you know, the Indian system has four stages, which you're probably well aware of the student, brahmacharya, the householder, grihasta, the retire to the forest, vanaprastha, 
and then the sannyasi, renunciation. These are very sensible and very clear-cut stages of life that you know, the average person can go through. The issue was is that in the type of organization that I was in, many young people who were not ready for the final stage of renunciation were either by their own wanting or by others suggesting got put into that situation and they were just not ready for it at all. Yeah. So, but there should have been, there should personally, of course, there should have been better understanding amongst human understanding amongst the members of these organizations that, you know, people can definitely need to learn other things and they should be blessed to go and learn those other things. But, but an organization exists to perpetuate itself whether it's following its own rules or not. And within that uh, scenario, um, the reality can be very different to what it thinks it is doing. And, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll find that everywhere in every single thing. I mean, after... In every single thing, yeah. Yeah. I had to, when we came back to live here in this area... We needed to support our family, and I got a job in Eastern Mountain Sports, you know, selling outdoor gear as a photographer. <laughs> and I found within that, you know, commercial corporation, there were actually clear, more clearly defined roles of behavior than in some you know, so-called spiritual organizations where the lines are not very clear. So that was another, that was another interesting thing to, to uh, discover. However, the, the issue is, for me, like the big teaching that I got, I learned yoga and meditation and Vedanta philosophy and Hatha yoga and Pranayama. But the big thing that our teacher did for us is two things. One is gave initiation. So he, he initiated us not just into mantra, but into spiritual life. So this is missing in our Western society largely. And the other thing is he formed a community. And within that community, like I was watching, you asked me what about the friends of Ashtanga Yoga? So I was looking at all of that and I was saying, and I was looking at it and I said, well, these people have, have, formed a community because mm -hmm. in our Western society, we don't have community. It's just was lost right probably around the Greek, you know, when the, the whole Greek thing started falling apart and Rome came up. I mean, there are little communities all over the place, but if you take the average society, what is the community? You go and fight for the American army in Afghanistan. What are you fighting for? Are you fighting for the Dunkin' Donuts on your street corner or what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. There's, not, there's nothing down in your gut. That, oh, well, there's the flag or et cetera. But people want to belong to a community and have that sense of feeling. So, so you know, and that's the, also you see in the Ashtanga world as well. Having gone, like the Ashtanga Yoga Shalas that started springing up all over the place, these were little tribal areas, communities, where people went and felt something. 
where, where do we have that today in Western society? And now pretty much the whole world is the, the football stadium or the pop stars. You know, they've become our gods and goddesses and the football stadium. I went to a basketball game in Chicago from Michael Jordan <laughs> era. He wasn't playing, but yeah. Scotty Pippen was playing. And that yeah. was the, the closest I've come to a spiritual revival anywhere in the West. Being inside that arena, yeah, <laughs> yeah. everyone, it's everyone incredible, was, isn't it? Yeah, this is this is this is the energy. Whereas, if you've traveled in India, you can go into an Indian temple during a festival, and there's that energy. So, community, so people latched on for community and you know awakening or initiation into something more than themselves, something bigger, something greater. Yes. That's incredible that you say that because I, I have a I have a secret passion for sports that I, I don't um you know reveal in my professional life as a yoga teacher. Mm. <laughs> so you know I, I, I went to those I went to those games at the United Center in Chicago and saw Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman play. And uh as anyone who knows me well, I'm a passionate follower of the new Orleans saints football club. And I'll, and I'll go to, um, uh, uh, pubs or clubs and bars and meet other men who can, and we join in a kind of ecstatic union. Right. That's extraordinarily primal and, and add, uh, and very, and, and very, uh, wholesome, at its core, as we beat the shit out of each other <laughs> in celebration, in over celebration, their team. <laughs> and it's I I can find it as you said I can find it nowhere else, right? And there's nowhere else for me to have that that kind of euphoria or feeling. Of course, there's also what comes with it is extraordinary sorrow, right? <laughs> when your team loses, it's it's really horrific. <laughs> And I see myself, I watch myself having the experience. It's like, yeah, well, I signed up for it, you know. Right. Well, mm. so, then, so then the teachings that you've discovered now, the yoga and Vedanta or Bhakti, are helping you and us and myself to keep that channeled down the middle path so that we don't swing off to one way, you know, up or down too far and that's the big struggle that we're dealing with and that yoga is giving us the strength to maintain and to do and to become grounded in that you know that still awareness in the center and eventually maybe like Nisargadatta or someone like that you can live in that whole thing but not be affected by it but that's that's I guess what yoga is supposed to be it's going to take some doing, but without having the experience one way or another, we're not going to know that. So, yes, definitely. The, and, and But, you know, our whole viewpoint of life in, I'm saying, the Western mode, which is prevailing around the world, or the left brain mode, or whatever you want to call it, is that we have we've are following... Arta, karma, dharma, to some degree, 
losing that very rapidly, but no moksha. Hmm. We don't have that. So we've got to fill in that there is moksha. Then we can, according to keep sticking to dharma, we can follow artha and karma. We can get wealth or happiness or material well-being, and we can enjoy that. But still, we need to keep in mind this should done, be done according to dharma, and there is something transcending all of that, you know, the moksha. We don't find that. So, And this, of course, is why we... This is the deepest thing inside of us that's making us, uh, that the yoga has touched, you know, be it Ashtanga yoga or Shivananda yoga or which, whichever yoga it is. It's the, the reality of what we are. So mm-hmm. it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> well, I really want to, I really want to really thank you for, for sharing that that those teachings with us today and i'm i'm very grateful that you would that you would come on to our show it's it's really i feel very honored and humbled that you would be here sir no i'm enjoying thanks a lot thanks for asking me <laughs> i saw on your website that you're teaching some pranayama and some vedanta classes online correct yes are you going to be starting a new session soon? I saw this one's almost finished. Yeah, we're starting uh, these just this week, finished September, and I'm taking one week. And then on, in October, we're starting up with uh, beginners, intermediate, advanced. And then I decided to add on a Kriya, Banda, and Mudra class as well because they were encroaching into the advanced class and we weren't getting... <laughs> You know, there's not enough time in an hour to do that. And then the Vedanta is, Vedanta's ongoing one more this Sunday, then a break as well, one week. And I'm just keeping them going. If you had asked me last year this time, if I would ever have taught a pranayama class online, I would have said, no way. (laughs) <laughs> and I am discovering that it has just been amazing, the, um, the classes, the practice, the people, you know, that have, you know, simple people not knowing any yoga or breathing have had anxiety for years, have uh, found some relief and, you know, other people learning different things. So it's been a truly, I call this Ma Corona Devi the blessings of the mother, <laughs> mother goddess Corona who has, you know, changed our lives in an instant and we can't even see her. And yeah. it's just been phenomenal. So, yes, carrying on the classes. Mm. Wonderful. And probably um, no plans for uh, another yatra anytime well, we, in the future? Well, we, yeah, we were supposed to go with Dr. Svoboda to uh, Gujarat. Right now, we would have been there. So we quit. We, <laughs> put, <laughs> we postponed. We've got it lined up for next year, September. And, and uh, we're just going to see what happens in the meantime. And, you know, maybe by then, um, according to, not according to medical science, but according to any 
astrologers, Jyotishas that I've spoken to, mm-hmm. their view is that after April next year, things will begin to quieten down a little bit. So we'll see. Who knows? That sounds like a good prediction. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, it might yeah. be. Well, wonderful. Yeah. And everyone everyone can come and find you on your website, right? Yeah, namarupa.org. By the way, wonderful. the reason we started that as a magazine was one when I was, if you have a little time, it'll take two minutes. Yes, please. I was... In Hawaii, I was practicing, and at the end of the practice, I was in Shavasana. And during the Shavasana, I was thinking, one thing I really missed at that point was satsang, because from living 20 years in an ashram, suddenly it was my wife, pregnant, and myself. And we were living alone together, and I thought, how can we keep satsang? And then I thought, well, if we, like you're doing a podcast, if we make a magazine and I can interview people who are on the spiritual path, then we'll have satsang. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's been the real, the real pleasure of this, is being able just to talk to old friends. Right, right. And then that grew into, um, you know, we were disillusioned with the yoga journal because yeah, yes. the, the path it had taken maybe it's different now i haven't seen it in a while but it started off pretty interesting and then it got you know the way that it got so it's not the things i was wanting to read or see or hear about or something um a little more interested in you know something almost something like the tricycle is to buddhism but not not exactly Mm -hmm. like that so one day I said to Eddie, hey, Eddie, why don't we just do this? And he said, okay. And we started just like that. But, you know, <laughs> but we never, we never, you know, it's just um, doing it ourselves. So well, it's, We, we it's, have almost every copy. So. Oh, great. Well, I was on your website and I was looking <laughs> at them all because you used to print them. And so all the printed ones I have, and then I've ordered a few of the printed ones. Oh, great. Um, yeah. And yeah, a few of the digital ones as well. But I was like, wow, I'm missing a lot. I better get on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's, some, there's some good ones in there and there's some that, you know, were hot, so-so. And, you know, and basically we just, you know, we just did it whenever we could. I mean, I was working full time. We were raising three kids. Uh, wow. So, you know, and trying to teach some yoga and practice yoga and do all these things. That's incredible. Yeah. And why did you name it Nama Rupa? Well, Nama is name and Rupa Mm -hmm. is form. So there's Brahman, absolute consciousness, which you cannot write anything about because it's absolute consciousness. But Nama and Rupa are endless and infinite and you can write anything (laughs) you like about. But uh, we limit... (laughs) We limited it to basically, quote, Hindu uh, practices in India because, you know, people wanted to hear Buddhist stuff and Tibetan Buddhist, which we knew nothing about. So, so we, and by doing Nama and Rupa, we could have images, pictures, architecture, which I'm still interested in, you know, poet, poems, etc., etc., yoga, 
Vedanta, philosophies. So that's all Nama Rupa, names and forms. We can go on. I have a I have a Parsi friend, and he walks into a bookstore and says, 26 letters and so many books. <laughs> <laughs> the only Parsi I know is Freddie Mercury. That's, that's amazing. Um, was it the same person? Was it no, no, not the same. But no. uh, they all okay. were quirky. The Parsis are strange, yeah. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Well, thank you very much again. And All right. It was a pleasure speaking with you. It was a true joy. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. And I hope I didn't say anything out of line anywhere. I'm just trying to tell you my own personal experience of what I've gone through. It was so wonderful. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in